Are you ready? Let's do this. Okay. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Whose Crime Is It Anyway? Dun, dun, dun. I'm your host for this case, Shell Morgan, and with me is the beautiful, the wonderful Lisa Magistrelli. Hey, guys! <laughs> <laughs> and... This afternoon, we are recording in beautiful Kitsilano with some rosé sparkling champagne. Wow, that was a pretty good cheers. Nice! Mm. Starting on the right foot. We have some snacks. We have a dog and a cat in the room. It's great. It's It's a great day. Okay, so today... I'm talking to you about one of Vancouver's most prolific unsolved cases. Behind the beautiful backdrop of Stanley Park, which is literally the crown jewel of the city, is a tale of two little kits found murdered among the trees and unidentified even to this day. It's hard to talk about missing and murdered children, but here we are (laughs) once again. Like, it's not it's a, a laugh- common theme here. It's not a laughing matter, but really, we have done so many cases on children. I know. That I, I think know. It's, it's, it's like we've got this is thing, the last one for a while. She's so fascinated by them. Okay, so this is the case of the Babes in the Woods, Vancouver's very own Hansel and Gretel mystery. Our story starts way back in 1953, in the woods of Stanley Park. It was wintertime, and on January 14th, around 10.30 in the morning, a group of park employees were clearing away some dense brush. Albert Tong was making his way around Beaver's Lake in Stanley Park when all of a sudden, his foot made a loud crack over some leaves. When Albert raked the leaves away, he discovered a skull. He lifted up some clothing and saw what he thought was a full skeleton. Now, Albert, for whatever reason, finished up his shift like it was no big deal, and he went home. But he, like, <laughs> he found- saw us. Okay, cool. There's a skull. Just I know. Carry on. Found his skull, and he just finished up his shift. Like he went back to work. Oh my god! Didn't tell anyone, and then he ended up calling the police the next day. And told them what happened. So okay, I mean, how, well, how late was it? Like ten thirty at night? Uh, no, this he found Sorry, it at ten thirty in, in, in the morning. Okay, so he just went the he whole just went day. the whole day, went to bed, <laughs> went to think about that, went to sleep, yeah. slept on it, and then yeah, called the police the next day. I think maybe because. It was. I'm, I might be incriminated okay, for this, or like I don't want to get involved. Or do you think that it looked like an animal skeleton, like a no? Animal skull? I think human skulls look way different than animal skulls. Yeah, like they do. <laughs> I mean, you would know, I guess, from would, from photos. Yeah, it would be kind of obvious. Yeah, I think you know, maybe too. Just back in that day in the fifties, you never know. Yeah. You may not want to get involved. That's fair. So the next day, he calls the police. At the scene, the police uncovered a set of bones along with the skull that Albert had stepped on, as well as another full set of human remains. But these weren't just bones. These remains were of two small children. 
remember that this is 1953. So we're eight years from the end of World War II. And the police uncover one small skeleton face down with a leather aviator style cap, a black leather belt around the waist, and brown Oxford shoes. Then the larger of the two skeletons lay across the feet of the other, with the same cap, the same belt, and shoes, as well as aviator goggles. Mm. So like the hats and the goggles are typical of what young boys would wear because it's after World War II. Yeah. So it was more just kind of like a trend. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Like I think it was sort of, it wasn't unheard of or it wasn't uncommon to see boys wearing these things like to reenact okay. something from World War II just because it was like such a big deal. All of their dads probably went away to war. Mm-hmm. They also discovered a blue metal lunchbox with rotting food inside laying between the two remains, as well as a plate bracelet on the larger skeleton that faintly showed two dogs etched into it, which when I looked at it, looked like Scotty's. And then it looked with a smaller animal in the middle of this bracelet. Mm -hmm. And so this information I found on a separate website. There was only two different news articles that posted that okay so it wasn't wildly known at the time at the time that that but i feel like that bracelet would have maybe told them where they're from it would have been a pretty maybe could have been a good identifier yeah yeah the second larger skeleton also had an interesting distinction it was covered by a woman's coat there was oh. also one single woman's penny loafer left at the scene that's a shoe. That's a shoe. Yeah. Like just, an, just one shoe. Just one shoe. So the coat, I really tried to find an actual description of what the coat looked like, but it varied in every single news article. It was described as a fur coat in one article, and then it was a rain slicker in another article, and then it was a cheap coat with a fur collar in another article. From what I gathered in all of the different articles, it was an inexpensive woman's coat. Okay. So one that you could get at a department store in Vancouver, like Woodward's or something like that at the time. It wasn't a really expensive fur coat. It was just an average coat. Yes, exactly. And it was covering the one skeleton, but not the other? Yeah, just one. So we know at this point that two children went to the park dressed in their World War II style aviator caps and goggles, packing a lunch with a woman that could have been their mother. Who is not there. Who is not there. There's no remains of a woman. There's just a woman's coat and a woman's penny loafer. The biggest discovery at the crime scene, investigators found a shingler's hatchet nearby. So one that has a sharp blade on one end and a hammer on the other, Mm -hmm. which would prove to be the murder weapon. Oh, how far away from the bodies was it? It was within the same area. Okay. So it was like left nearby. Okay. It was determined that one child had been struck on the head with the handle and then the other was struck on the head with the blade. They like, I guess when they examined it, the etchings from the skull. Yeah directly matched the shingler's hatchet. Okay. What happened? Was it like a picnic gone wrong? Yeah. <laughs> like, honestly, I'm like so baffled because oh it seems so savage to be like, oh, here, let's pack a lunch and like get dressed up and yeah. go play games in the park and then be like, psych, murder yeah. your children. Or and, Yeah, and leave one. But 
Okay, but there's one she left behind. That's just so weird. Why? Why would you? I just don't get it. How? Why would you leave with one shoe if, if there was a woman with them that left? If that was what happened. If that was what happened, yeah. why? Why wouldn't you put your shoe back on? Like, why would you leave without a shoe on? Exactly. Okay. It's, it's super strange. Okay. So, at the time, the remains were boxed up by police pretty carelessly, but it is 1953, Mm -hmm. and there weren't the same measures and precautions for not contaminating evidence like there is today. Right. And they sent the bones to a pathologist and a coroner for further examination. They determined that the remains were of a boy and a girl between the ages of 6 and 10, as one skeleton was larger than the other. A missing brother and sister... So this was back in the 50s, and DNA testing wasn't around yet, and gender was difficult to tell from skeletal remains. But this one fact of the remains being a brother and sister would send the Vancouver police looking in the complete wrong direction for four decades. Four decades? Four decades. So there were absolutely no missing persons reports of a boy and a girl or brother and sister missing from the area at the time. So the two little kids were completely unidentified at the time, like in the 50s. So to help with the investigation, police commissioned a renowned forensic anthropologist to recreate the faces of the two children into plaster molds. The anthropologist believed that the kids were maybe of Swedish or Norwegian descent, both with light brown hair. How can they tell that from a skull? Well, bones. I think because of the facial structure, so when she's yeah. recreating the features, and maybe it seems like I have no idea. I'm not. Yeah, like that sounds not so an anthropologist. Yeah, I know. <laughs> seems so crazy. Like how can you determine that? And she was world renowned. Okay. These pictures of the children's newly casted faces and replicas of the clothing that they were wearing were circulated to all of the newspapers at the time. This case received a ton of media attention back in the 50s, and tips poured in about missing siblings from all over North America. The police were trying to also pinpoint the time of death, and they settled on 1947, which was six years before the babes in the woods were found. Wow. There was a credible eyewitness account from a woman who was walking through Stanley Park in 1947 with her fiancé, and she saw a woman in a fur coat carrying a hatchet with two young children, a boy and a girl. Yeah. So I personally am always surprised when people remember scenarios from years ago. Right. I'm always just like, bullshit. Yeah. Oh, you did? Yeah, sure. Like, I can't remember what I did last week, so. Those details were obviously released to the public. Yes. Already. So that's the thing. But this woman, reason why she was credible is that she said that she had broken off her engagement to her fiance that day. Mm -hmm. So she remembers everything really clearly because it was a significant significant event for her. And she also was one of those people that kept a diary. She said that when she saw that woman again, like the one that she, you know, saw walking with the fur coat and the hatchet, Mm -hmm. She was leaving the park without a coat and only wearing one shoe. That's pretty specific. So specific. This is why the police at the time thought in 1947 this might be when it happened. Mm -hmm. But the police also believed that the shoes the children were wearing, the brown Oxfords, Mm -hmm. were thought to be imports from Asia after the end of World War II. So that also solidified the date of death in 1947. Okay. Because it would have been, like, after After the war. After the war. Okay. 
So it couldn't have been before that. But the eyewitness wanted to remain anonymous and the police really got nowhere. Detectives followed up on tips, but they just found nothing. Years went by and these two little children remained unidentified until Sergeant Brian Honeyburn takes over the case 40 years later. Oh my God. 40 years! In 1996, Honeyburn asks Dr. David Sweet at the University of British Columbia to test the DNA of the children's teeth, which at this point, 40 years later, they hadn't fully decomposed. Wow. So this was the break that the case desperately needed. Dr. Sweet discovered that the brother Dr. and sister... S- I know. I'm sorry, Dr. Sweet? I know. And, and, and he's, he's a dentist? Teeth? He's like a forensic dentist or whatever. I love that. That's perfect. I know. So, Finding out lollipops and testing <laughs> teeth. <laughs> no, Dr. Sweet seems... I hope he's a sweet man. I hope so. So he discovered that the brother and sister were actually two boys brothers oh with the same mother and different fathers and these two boys were between the ages of five and seven not six and ten they were close if you think of but a seven-year-old compared to a ten-year-old like that's quite a bit younger Mm -hmm. this mistake of believing that the children were brother and sister threw off the investigation in its early stages police never followed up on any tips that mentioned two boys or a brother and a missing brother like it wasn't they just were like okay thanks and basically didn't take the tip seriously so that credible tip from the woman who broke off her engagement that day is bullshit because she saw a boy and a girl so that sighting is that what she said she she saw saw a boy boy and a girl what a lying piece of shit yeah so that sighting is now completely irrelevant And You're a liar! Yeah, and it throws off the timeline. So, Ugh. because she said 1947. I know. And so then they put that with wow, the shoes. Wow, they really relied on her. Yes, eh? 100%. Holy cow. Sergeant Honeyburn took over this case and he did some more digging. And he also found out that the style of shoe that the children were wearing, those Oxfords, had actually been around in Vancouver even before World War II started. No. So, oh my God. the timeline is completely changed. It's like the, a needle in a haystack now. Yeah, now the murder could have taken place way before 1947, and to this day, we still don't know the exact time of death. It's time to look at this case with fresh eyes. Mm-hmm. Sergeant Honeyburn followed up on a few key tips about two missing boys that were overlooked so many years ago. There's a lot here, but I'm going to break them down. <laughs> I found, I found every tip I could possibly find on this case. Okay, let's hear it. Okay, so in 1953, which is when the babes in the woods were first discovered, there was a tip from a logger who claimed in 1947 he picked up a woman with bright red hair and her two sons hitchhiking and drove them to Stanley Park. His tip even mentioned aviator caps. So... Sergeant Honeyburn tracked down this logger. He was at this time 75 years old. Wow. And he told the police that he remembered the woman was a sex worker who was worried about social services taking her sons. She had also told the logger that she lived on Cherry Street in Mission, BC. 
and that her sons attended Cedar Valley School. Like, this is so That's, much information for, like, someone who said hitchhiking. this to, was a tip that just wasn't even... Yeah, he called it in in 1953. It was never taken seriously because it's two boys, and right. they were looking for a boy and a girl. Oh, my God. You know, why this woman told him this or how he remembers all these years later, I'm really not sure. Personally, I see red flags when I hear this tip because it makes me think that the logger had something to do with it. It's so much information to remember right. from... I don't know what street they live on. you're calling in now. You remember the street. Mm-hmm. It would it, be one thing if it was just like saying I picked up these two kids and their mom, and this is what she looked like and whatever and it was just kind of like a weird encounter but to say they go to this school they yeah live, live on, on this, this street. street like nah nah yeah i agree or like the blogger was gonna be using the woman's services maybe like that could be why she released so much information maybe i'm just speculating okay so just a tip just a tip so Honeyburn found the identity of this woman, though, who was a sex worker from Mission. And Mission is about an hour and a half away from Vancouver. Honeyburn nicknamed her Lipstick Liz. And he could not locate her specifically, but he found a couple in Mission who remembered a couple on Cherry Street who had two sons and their last name was Grant. So Honeyburn found surviving members of this Grant family and discovered that these two sons that the logger remembers had grown up and were accounted for. Oh, wow. That was... Okay, so the logger was... He was right. He like, was telling the truth. He was telling the truth. Yeah. Crazy good memory. Okay, like, which here is I am a, thinking you're okay. There's something fishy about that. Good for you, buddy. Good yeah, like you. he fully remembered it. Great but memory. I think he was still a little shady in my opinion. <laughs> Something else was. Something so, else happened. Yeah. But um so they were okay. They they were fine. Tip number one, doesn't pan out. So another tip came from May 1944, when a sailor and his wife reported a woman running out of the park bushes in Stanley Park in front of them on the seawall. And according to them, she let out a loud guttural sound. After seeing this couple, this woman with this guttural sound takes off, but they noticed that she didn't have a coat on and was only wearing one shoe. I know. Okay, so... This is in 1944, so it does now fit because they weren't even looking at tips before 1947. But the, okay, the fact that she wasn't wearing a coat, obviously it must have been like winter time then if they were going to make note of that because that would be like, oh, it's freezing. You should be wearing a coat. See, I thought that this was interesting about this tip, which is why I don't find it credible, is that I personally would never notice if someone isn't wearing exactly. a coat. Unless, unless it was freezing cold Unless out. it was freezing cold and she was in like short sleeves. Yes. But like... If someone was even in like a long sleeve and they just weren't wearing their jacket, I don't think I would say like, oh, that woman's not wearing a coat. Like, yeah, it's only when you can see like bare arms and yeah. cold out. And you're, you're like, like, oh, it ah, must be freezing. Girl. Like, Unfortunately, this couple couldn't be located by Sergeant Honeyburn during his reinvestigation. And to be honest, they probably aren't around anymore for questioning. Yeah. Um, which leads to another dead end tip. So... Apparently, there is also another account from two witnesses who saw a family of four walking that day. The witnesses said it wasn't a boy and a girl, it was two boys. One of them had a hatchet, and they remember because the boy was walking along, like one of the boys was walking along banging the hatchet on the railings of like an iron fence. Like, you know, little boys just like playing with something, right? 
So later, the witnesses spotted the man and the woman again. This time, they were alone. The kids were nowhere to be seen, and the woman was wearing just one shoe, covered in blood. Okay. Right? So, ugh. Police were unable to speak to those witnesses again, and the couple was never found. Like, they don't know who this was. It's just crazy. When was this? I couldn't find an exact date okay. of when the of when this tip happened, but this like would have been a tip that came in in the fifties, like after the babes were found. Covered in blood, right? Wearing one shoe. Where? I mean, okay. But say, then they say they saw four people: a man and a woman. So we'll play this scenario out. Maybe they were going for a walk as a family, mm-hmm. and the dad lost his mind, and say he murdered the kids and that's why she put her jacket on one of them as like a loving thing from a mom like my baby is like dying here have my jacket I know and then lost her shoe in the mix of it and she could have been just so distraught that she just didn't even care that she didn't have a shoe on like she just was like because doesn't even register right like in shock almost because she may not have even thought that that's what was going to happen right maybe she's so afraid of the husband the dad yeah but for them to say for these witnesses that they're just walking and she's got no shoe on like right you would you would go back for your shoe unless you were fleeing from a scene and your shoe was there and you're just trying to take off yeah you wouldn't just be casually walking away with one shoe knowing that it's not on unless you were like just not in your right mind exactly okay i agree that's a with very you. possible scenario i okay. i know and also this seems to me like this is the first time one of the tips has said that it's a four like four people right these aren't details that were released to the public but they couldn't locate them nope okay couldn't locate them and honestly all of these witnesses are most likely gone now. Mm-hmm. Another weird tip that I'm just going to throw out there because I just thought it was so weird. It's a tip that came in from Clifford Olson, the serial Stop. killer. His mother. What? Who reported her neighbor acting strange. Olson would have only been 13 years old at the time. Like Clifford Olson would have been... A teenage, like a very young teenager. So it likely wasn't him, but it's just so weird that a tip about this case, like two kids, came in from his mom and then her son son ends up being a child child killer. So apparently this neighbor, suspicious neighbor, was followed up on and he was cleared. Okay. Or they were cleared. I don't know if it was a he or a she, but... This tip never panned out to anything, but I just found what it. What are the odds? So strange, so strange. Like you just wait, honey. Your son's gonna I be know. the worst of them all. She's already Jesus. calling in tips. Like yeah, jeez. Holy cow. This is the most recent lead in the last five or so years. Former Vancouver Police Department detective Ron Amiel was born in 1930 and he lived with his grandma in her rooming house on Butte and Davies Street in downtown Vancouver. This detective is telling Eve Lazarus, who is an author who wrote a book called Cold Case Vancouver, which is where I got most of the information from this case. Mm -hmm. Ron is telling Eve 
he's saying that his grandmother knew this guy called Harry Cox, and he was a signalman at the Prospect Point Lighthouse, which is in Stanley Park. Mm -hmm. So after the war, Harry's daughter and her two sons stayed in the detective grandma's rooming house. So Harry is this signalman, right? Yeah. And he has a daughter, and that daughter has two sons. So after the war happened, this daughter and her two sons decided to stay in the rooming house with the detective's grandma. Okay. So that's how the detective knows all of these people. Okay. So at some point, the two little boys that she had with her disappeared, and their disappearance was never investigated. Because, and like the tips called in, like because police were looking for a brother and sister at the time, they weren't looking for two brothers. But these two boys genuinely did go missing. According to this VPD detective, yes. And like no one did anything about it? And no one did anything about it. Which seems so strange to me. So they're going to do something about babes in the woods, these two kids. Because they're murdered, but these two are just missing missing kids. Come on. I know. Okay. It's the 50s. Yeah. Apparently, this lead was looked into from what I can gather. So Harry Cox, which is the lighthouse signalman, his daughter with the two boys who disappeared had another son. And that son died in the 70s. So it was thought that if these two boys that disappeared were the babes in the woods, that this other boy who died in the 70s could be another sibling. Yeah, related to them. And related to them. So in 2015, this boy's body was exhumed. Oh my God. And tested for mitochondrial DNA, or that's DNA passed directly from the mother. Unfortunately... The results were inconclusive. Oh, no. There wasn't enough DNA for a match. Inconclusive? Yeah. So, I don't know. I know. And so, like, well, you basically, like, didn't do the test, I guess, if it's inconclusive. It, like, is... I don't really know what inconclusive means. Maybe there just wasn't enough of it. Yeah. I think that that's probably what Because when we do um, biopsies, we, we don't just take one core. We take about three or four passes so that they have plenty to test. Okay. So, yeah, my best guess is that there just wasn't enough. And that really sucks. And mitochondrial DNA testing is actually really expensive. So it's about $5,000 each time to test a sample. Okay. So if they don't have a really good sample or, like, they're not sure that this is someone that they want to test against, Mm -hmm. I guess, then they wouldn't want to use that up because there's limited DNA available from Babes in the Woods now that it's been so long, right? Ultimately, the trail goes cold and it stays cold to this very day, which is really sad. I can't believe that. I know. It seems like a case to me that can be solved. Like, how has there not been one parent or like somebody like from a school or like a family friend that has said there are two boys that have gone missing. Honeyburn decided to cremate the babes in the woods. He did save crucial parts for further DNA testing if needed, um, but he did take a police bow out on the ocean near Kitts Beach where he scattered their ashes. No way. Yeah. And there was an annual children's festival taking place at the time, which to the sergeant was a very nice coincidence. Wow. It's been a little bit controversial, this decision. I know some people were a little bit upset that he had done that because I think it they thought that it might limit... Well, do you think that it compromised DNA? Yeah, so or, that... Or it might just, like, limit the amount of DNA samples that right. they would have to be able to test. Um, but he has said that he saved 
what he thought what was he thought necessary. was necessary. Yeah, to be able to have DNA to be able to send out if the time wow. came. To this day, the Babes in the Woods have never been identified, and it remains one of Vancouver's most mysterious and sad, unsolved, unidentified murder cases. Poor babes. I know. Poor babes. So what do you think? My initial impression when you described the scene, when there was a jacket put on top of the kid. Yeah. If they were trying to cover up the bodies, they would have tried to cover up both of them and not just leave one. So it's very possible that maybe that jacket was covering both of them and then something moved that smaller body. But it makes me think that when you put something over top of a It a shows remorse. It shows remorse. It shows it that you have a, a heart and you care and you're... It wasn't just like cold-blooded unless you were legit just trying to cover up the body and like hide it and hide it. I have a couple of, not theories, but a couple of thoughts. The bodies were placed side by side and they were really close together. Even if some, maybe like the elements had moved them at some point, if you hit someone with a hatchet and they fall down, they weren't left in that exact same position. They were moved. Someone had to have at least moved them side by side so that they were close enough together. And you wouldn't be able to hit both at the same time. No. But I do feel like it was the coat being put over the body um, with the bodies kind of close together, the lunchbox, which showed like they had a lunch. They were packing like some lunch, probably having a date at the park. caring for them. Exactly. But then the shoe being left there feels really hasty. Like, everything feels really calm, done to a point where it's like, okay, no one else is here. Yeah, you're not in a rush. You're not in a rush, but then you lose your shoe and you walk away without one. In a way, there's two tips. There's a tip where they see someone running. Yep. And then there's a tip where they see her walking. Walking with her, with covered blood with the guy. Yeah. So which one is right? See, this is why, so these tips coming in and then, like, obviously the penny loafer and the hoping left at the scene makes me think that the woman was there yes but there's no evidence of a man being there so we don't know other than the eyewitness we have no idea if that's true mm-hmm. but it's just weird too to me that one of the boys was hit with the handle and the other with the blade why not hit them both with the blade because yeah. it would be like instant yeah well maybe she did the first one and realized well that wasn't the right way to do it with the handle. With the handle. Yeah. I was like, shit, I guess I should use the blade. Oh, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, mistake. Made a, I made a mistake. <laughs> I'll but do like, better next that time. that kid like started to run? Oh my oh, gosh. I know. And like no one heard screams. Wouldn't someone miss them? I know. Like, I wouldn't know. someone what, say, well, oh, maybe, I haven't seen these kids around in so long. Maybe they weren't from Vancouver. Yeah. That's the other theory. Maybe they weren't from here. Maybe they're from out of town. Well, because people were coming from all over, because Vancouver's a port city, and after the war, there was a lot of people coming in and out, and people wanting like a better life, coming over from Europe. They could be from Europe. Oh, God. Or from the States. Like, you never know. They could have come up from the States. Either way, now you're opening up a whole can of worms. And how do you find... Two like, missing boys? Two missing boys. In an entire country? Yes. Like So yeah, maybe they weren't from here. And there was a missing boy report 
from where they're from, but it obviously just didn't make it, it didn't to here. Reach it here. Well, yeah. And then the 50s, like the news does not travel fast. Like they no. don't get that information that far away. They did have the their faces, the plaster mold faces in a lot of like the North American newspapers, newspapers. Though it was a pretty big case at the time because it was kind of like the first. I think it was really tough because they were unidentified. Like, they didn't actually know their names. Yeah. And they're just... I mean, like, how accurate are these molds, too? And they don't they don't look like anything. <laughs> they just look like... <laughs> like like normal children dolls. Oh, yeah, like- they do. And she made... She thought one of them was a girl. So she made one of them look like a girl. That's actually a good point, now that I say that out loud, because... All the newspapers would have been saying a missing boy and girl. Yeah. States or provinces weren't reporting to the Vancouver police any missing boys because they're like, oh, well, it's boy and girl that they're looking for. It's not the one. The coroner who decided or the doctor or pathologist, whoever he was, that decided that that was a girl made... That's a catastrophic He screwed up the entire investigation. Entirely. (gasps) And, like, there was also evidence, like, they were wearing the same clothing. It's really hard to believe at that time that a girl, especially in the 50s, would be wearing wearing a boy's outfit. Right. With boy's Oxford shoes, boy's pants, a boy's flannel top... Okay. A boy's belt, a boy's cap. What was the difference that made them think it was a female? I know. I I don't know. That would be really nice to know. So the last thing that they did was five years ago. They exhumed that body in 2015. Inconclusive. Yeah. So that would have been 2014. We might discover more information in the upcoming years. So detectives do believe that new DNA techniques could be the key to finally putting names to the faces of the babes in the woods. Staff Sergeant Dale Weedman from the Vancouver Police Department plans to put the DNA samples of the babes in the woods into online consumer databases like Ancestry.com yes, genealogy. and 23andMe to see if their identities can finally be discovered. So by using public DNA databases and entering the children's DNA, police could discover their relatives and last names to be able to match school records and find out who these boys really are. And birth records could identify their mother, which might identify who was who the coat and the shoe belonged to and whether it was actually her that killed them. Right. So then we might finally have closure for the babes in the woods. So when it comes to public databases like Ancestry.ca, the RCMP is aware that some Canadian police agencies are currently exploring the use of genetic genealogy in criminal investigations. This includes the RCMP. This is happening. It's just not happening very fast in Canada. Like the states, things have really moved along with a couple of cases. Of course, Golden State Killer, April Tinsley is another one, like big one that's been used to solve. But at least they're getting the ball rolling. I mean, they are doing it. They are doing it. At the moment, the only legislation in Canada that deals with DNA evidence is the DNA Identification Act of 1998 which created a national data bank and gave judges the power to order criminals to submit their samples. That bank only has people who've been already arrested or convicted or whatever, right? In case there's more links that they've... Yeah, but that isn't going to cover everyone because a lot of times 
of course, in like a case like the Babes in the Woods, this person isn't in any database. No. So it would have to be a family member. Mm -hmm. I think this is the only way the case is going to be solved. That's it. This new wave of DNA databases and genealogy samples to find murderers and killers is literally uncharted territory. Mm -hmm. I think we'll see what happens soon, and I hope it works in favor of the victims versus the accused. We'll see. There's nothing we can do but wait. If there are any updates on this case, which I hope there will be with DNA testing down the road, we will be sure to let you know. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Whose Crime Is It Anyway? We will be back next week with a new case. Woohoo! A few other things there. I think we should go. I would love to go and check that out. Yeah, I think we should for sure go. We're going to solve it, guys. We're going to solve the case. <laughs> we're going to crack Just this wait, case. We're, we're going to freaking solve this We shit. are going to solve the babes in the woods. Moose. Sorry, buddy. He's, he's been, like, can he's you? been good. He fell asleep there for a I minute. know. He's like, can you guys just stop and hang out with me now? I know. Can you hear that? wants to be <laughs> near And so I was like moving his face. Maybe like, he could go lay on his bed. Can you go lay on your bed? Can you go lay on your bed, Moose? Go lay down. Stay there, Moose. Good boy. Good boy. Yeah, these had a very nice chime to them. I know. They must be really expensive. They're really nice um, champagne flutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they feel pretty sturdy. Mm-hmm. Bling.